listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Queer. Surrealist. Shiny. A sound can evoke a time, a place, or a way of looking at the world. Alex Temple writes music that distorts and combines iconic sounds to create new meanings, often in service of surreal, cryptic, or fantastical narratives. In addition to performing her own works for voice and electronics, she has collaborated with performers and ensembles such as Melissa Hughes, Julia Holter, Wild Up, Spectral Quartet, and the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. In 2017, she completed a DMA at Northwestern University, and she is now an assistant professor of composition at Arizona State University. Uh, Alex, first off, nice to meet you. Uh, I don't think we've ever met, um, but, you know, uh, like this, hopefully sometime in person. And second, absolutely to Adjective. Um, you know, Thank you. One of one of a group of our newest uh, composer collective members. We're really excited to to have you here and get to know all uh, get to know you and your music through the podcast, and then hopefully you know have you on some of the like group podcasts that tend to be a little bit more silly and fun. I do like silly. Yeah, silly's good, right? So uh, we're going to. Hey, did you know? Did you hear? Uh, you know, elevators are not really safe right now because of COVID. So I've been taking steps to avoid them. Yeah. Well, there it is. There it is. (laughs) So we're going to be looking at uh, three of your pieces today. Um, And I wanted to start off with the man who hated everything, which is For for flute, sax, trombone, piano, electric guitar, vibraphone, drum set, two violins, cellos. Um, yeah. Wow. This piece just brought a smile to my face the entire time I was listening to it. I mean, well, thank you. It's, uh, it's a, like an homage slash critique to Frank Zappa and his mm-hmm. musical style. Um, uh, Zappa is someone who I honestly haven't listened to too much to to much of his work and i i think you know we all have some of those books or films or music uh that we've just kind of missed and almost kind of feel embarrassed about and zappa is definitely one of those uh people for me so to start off you know i wanted to kind of get your take on zappa and maybe for other listeners like myself who have maybe missed him what is good what's bad you know what what were you responding to Well, so Zappa has a huge output, and I only know a small fraction of it myself. Um, I'm most interested in his uh, early work with his band, The Mothers of Invention. So albums like Lumpy Gravy, We're Only In It For The Money, Weasels Ripped My Flesh, um, Absolutely Free, uh, and so on. And what I really love about those albums is that there's this kind of chaotic energy to them and he's just kind of grabbing stuff from everywhere there's you know many of the same styles that i referenced in that piece uh in in tribute to him so uh mid-century modernism and doo-wop and psychedelia and all kinds of other stuff 
and it all just kind of gets mashed together. You know, I've been interested in polystylism for a long time, and Zappa was really my introduction to it as a teenager. Um, particularly those two albums, Absolutely Free and We're Only In It For The Money. Uh, at the same time, he's also a problematic figure. There's a lot of sexist humor in his work, um, and every now and then a little racism too. Uh, he was very cynical, and you know the, the text at the end of that piece that I wrote is an actual list of things he actually hated, and some of those things are very deserving of that uh, contempt and others are really not um you know on the one hand yeah televangelists yeah i hate televangelists too they do enormous damage on the other hand you know um i mentioned one of the lines is uh, hated american womanhood that's actually a reference to one of his songs uh which is this critique of so-called what in the, in the lyrics it says american womanhood but you know, it's really just this kind of like tedious, like kind of broy complaint about like women wearing too much makeup or something, um, and it just feels like a description of kind of like a bimbo stereotype. And I don't mean in the like, you know, avant-garde leftist reclamationy TikTok kind of way. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so I felt like. I did want to pay tribute to him because he was a big influence on me and because I was writing for a group in LA where he worked for much of his life. Uh, and his work is just absolutely studded with references to the geography of LA too. Uh, you know, you'll get spoken interludes and they'll just say somebody's creeping around Laurel Canyon, you know, his little disaffected voice and all kinds of stuff like that. Sometimes San Francisco too, but mostly LA. And Chris Roundtree had described Wild Up to me as janky and noisy, which felt appropriate. But I didn't feel like I could write a tribute to him without also kind of calling him out at the same time. And also, you know, he made fun of other people constantly. Uh, one of the big influences on The Man Who Hated Everything was a song called Oh No, in which he's, I'm pretty sure, making fun of John Lennon with lyrics like, uh, I, can't, I can't come up with it till I sing it. I'm not going to try to sing it on this podcast, but it's like, oh, no, I can't believe it. You say that you think you know the meaning of love. Do you really think it can be told? You say love is all we need. I think you should check it again. I can't remember the order of the lines. At some point he says, I think you're probably out to lunch. <laughs> um, and so I feel like, you know, if he's going to dish it, he should be able to take it. Right. Posthumously in this case. Um, and so the last line of the piece, which pokes fun at his own kind of uh, Proto-George Carlin-esque arrogance at times uh, is, isn't it peculiar that a man who didn't believe in love could have so much of it for himself? That line was just so perfect. I mean, honestly, it was so great at, at the end there. So, yeah. Yeah. I really liked writing that in such a way that the listener is potentially just kind of like waiting to see what the punchline is going to be. Because it's not until the very last two words that you get the joke. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I, you know, could you talk about like how humor or levity, how these ideas kind of play in your musical thought and aesthetic? Sure. Um, I really like humor. I make a lot of jokes just in life. And I like a lot of different kinds of humor. I like puns and wordplay. I like clever, complicated rhymes, which I enjoy writing sometimes. I like 
bleak sort of gallows humor. Um, I like absurdity. And I've written a number of pieces that deal with humor in various ways. Uh, for example, I've <clears throat> for example, I've got a piece called Viola Joke, which is actually structured as a stand-up comedy routine. Yeah, we're gonna get we're gonna get to that we're gonna get to that piece later. I'm I'm excited to talk. Oh, about Oh, okay. That well, one. I won't say too much about it right now, yeah. but I will say yeah, it has a laugh track, and uh, the jokes don't really belong to this universe. That's they they're jokes that are being told in a like an apocalyptic nightmare world. I mean, we yeah. do live in an apocalyptic nightmare world, but <laughs> a, a much more Lovecraftian science fictional apocalyptic nightmare world than than this one, which is just you know capitalism and. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So I like using, I like combining humor with horror or creepiness. And I like a lot of stuff by other people that does that as well. I also like combining humor with pointed political commentary, which Zappa also did. And, you know, when he wasn't being a jerk, he was right on. He made fun of censorship. He made fun of, uh, suburban conformism he made fun of the commercialization of the hippie movement um and you know i'm with him on all of that uh so there's a satirical element um i like just plain old musical humor too that can arise from the unexpected but of course that's very subjective whether something comes across as funny or scary is not always very predictable and this is something i've learned in particular from david lynch who has been a big influence on my work. In the movie Inland Empire, there's a scene early on in which the protagonist, Nikki, played by Laura Dern, who is a middle-aged actress, clearly has been very successful in the past, but is kind of past her glory days film-wise. Uh, but she lives in this huge mansion with like a butler. And this mysterious woman comes to visit, played by Grace Zabriskie. And they're sitting in Laura Dern and Nikki's huge fancy living room. And Grace Zabriskie's character, who doesn't even have a name, she's just identified as visitor number one, <laughs> is asking her all of these unnerving questions. Do you have a new role to play, I hear? And Laura Dern, every time there's a cut back and forth, it cuts a little early. And you see Laura Dern just kind of looking at Grace Zabriskie with this expression, like, what is going on here? And then she'll, like, put on the big fake movie star smile and say, oh, well, up, from a, up for a role, far from getting it. And the questions get more and more disturbing, eventually getting to, is there a murder in your film? And Laura Dern says, uh, no, that's not in the script. Grace Zabriskie says, oh, I think you are wrong about that. Brutal fucking murder. I hope I'm not quoting so much of this that it's going to be a copyright problem. Um, I think it'll be fine. <laughs> anyway, I have seen this movie in the theaters four times, which is already kind of ridiculous because it's like a three-hour surrealist nightmare. And audience responses to that scene have varied so much. They Because, you know, audience response is a collective thing, which is something that we're really missing um, in the pandemic. Uh, each all watching at home on our isolated yeah. computers. You know, it's very different from experiencing something live with somebody. Um, and of course, Viola Joke, which we'll talk about, is all about the audience experience, except that it's a real audience and also a fictional audience played by the laugh track. But um, 
So some of the times that I've seen Inland Empire, people laugh at that scene. And other times they are dead silent. Because, yeah, it is funny. And it's also really creepy and disturbing. And which of those two things wins out may depend. I mean, it's almost like a, you know, maybe there's even a sensitive dependence on initial conditions, you know, uh, where like one person will laugh and that'll like start the process of building into the communal response of finding it funny more than scary. Or maybe, you know, it goes the other way. So, um, and this is something David Lynch is very interested in, in general, uh, this question of audience. One of the things that he does in Inland Empire also is he incorporates bits of this sort of sitcom that he had done a couple of years earlier called Rabbits, which involves these actors in giant sort of mascot-sized rabbit heads saying these extremely disconnected sentences whose meaning is not at all clear, like, it has to do with the telling of time. And when will you tell it? And there's a laugh track, which was part of the inspiration <laughs> for Viola joke. And their reaction, sometimes they cheer, sometimes they laugh. There's absolutely no literal direct correspondence to whatever the rabbits are doing, the rabbit people. Um, so it's a, it's, it's trans, a transformation of the audience from a real interaction into kind of a formalized object. Um, which is also something that I do in Viola Joke, not so much explicitly in other works. I think I've lost the direction of this thread. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. It's great. I love it. So, I mean, you know, you were you were talking about like the audience as a, a collective experience. And I mean, I actually had an experience like that in a movie. Um, I b- believe... I think it was the second Lord of the Rings movie that I saw with a friend in the theater. And there's that scene where Gollum and Smeagol are like talking to each other, which of course is the same physical character, but two, um, two like halves of the same personality. And people were laughing, you know, and this guy up front, like actually stood up in the theater and was like, this is not a funny scene. <laughs> and was so pissed off that like the, uh, the collective audience, like at, at that showing actually found that quite funny, but yeah, I don't know. I was going to say, that sounds like it would have the exact opposite result than the one he intended. Exactly. I think we laughed harder after that. <laughs> You know, this also makes me think of the Rocky Horror Picture Show uh, on a very different tone from David Lynch, uh, which I've been to a million times. You know, it was really a, uh, you know, a lot of people have now pointed out ways in which it's problematic, which it is. Uh, But it was really an important part of my sort of early queer life as a late in my late adolescence. Mm -hmm. Even before I identified as queer, it was a site of gender exploration. Yeah. But it's also, you know, so there's that, you know, you can get dressed up and you can be eccentric and all this stuff. And there's all this like, you know, all these queer characters and this sort of, uh, how do I want to put it, this this valorization of hedonism in the show. But also there's a lot of humor and there's a lot of jokes and there's a lot of people yelling stuff at the screen, which is various different kinds of humor. You know, there's some that's very crude. There's some that's actually just kind of insulting in a way that I don't enjoy. And I don't say those lines. 
And there's some that's riffing on various negative qualities of the movie production, which is always fun because mm-hmm. it's a very cheaply made movie. Cause you know, um, <laughs> and there's also a lot of puns, you know, one of my favorite moments, um, is when Frankenfurter is whipping riffraff and the audience yells, thank him for it. Thank him for it in French. And riffraff says, mercy. That was a great moment. And it's also a collective experience. Very much so. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. I mean, what other movie could be so collective as an audience, as an audience experience in Rocky Horror Picture Show at this, at this point, you know, I mean, I mean, yeah, especially with now, you know, nearly, Four decades, is that right? No. Eight, nine, zero, one. Nearly five decades. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> so um I yeah, I, I want to get back to this piece. So the collage and interplay um of all the di- of the different illusions and associations in this piece are incredible. I mean, how do you this is going to this is going to be a question that probably isn't answerable, but how do you make it seem so effortless? <laughs> to like go from <laughs> this to that to this. Oh. <laughs> but I, I think what I'm not effortless. Oh, this was, I'm that was sure. a hard, it was a hard piece to write. I'm, I'm glad sure. it comes across that way. It really does. And you know, I think what I'm getting at is it seems like you have to be comfortable with a ton of different styles and genres to pull this off. I mean, it reminds me of theater composers or film composers that need to, you know, they need to write in a certain way to satisfy the moment of the film, even though like, you know, their personal aesthetic be damned, like this is what the film needs. I've got to do it, you know, so for for you kind of moving through this, I mean, obviously you have the uh, the the Zappa albums and everything, but was there was there like in the same way a film composer has a story to write to you? Was there kind of even an abstract story for you to kind of take you through all of these, uh, uh, all of these different styles and moods and, and shifts in, in the piece? Kind of, I wouldn't necessarily use the word story, but there is an overarching structure. And that was the hardest part to figure out mm-hmm. I, because I, that was something I was struggling with while I was writing it. I had all this different stuff. How was I going to put it together? And the actual thing that holds it together is that there is a particular uh, melodic shape that comes back in many different guises. Uh, so you get it right at the very beginning of the piece and it's kind of most Zappa-like form. Bum, ba, 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 ba. I'm not going to sing this very well, so I'm not going to try. Um, <laughs> I mean, I can just share share the audio if you want. Sure. Right. Okay. So there's this initial theme uh, that appears in a number of guises. Here's how it first appears. Here's the version that sounds kind of like a bit Thelonious Monk, a bit Monsieur.
And then it comes back in this, what I call the shiny version. Uh, you'll hear it here in the piccolo. What comes immediately after that is the beginning of this kind of 60s film strip with a tinge of bossa nova kind of music. Yeah. And that is an important point in the piece's structure as well, because up until that point, everything's been these fragments and a lot of interruptions and a lot of pauses. But from that point to the ending, it's one continuous musical argument uh, until it returns to the opening material with now with words at the very end. Um, and so in doing that, I incorporated a whole bunch of different themes from elsewhere in the piece, which is another thing that makes it hold together. Uh, so for example, um, early on, there's this uh, sort of avant Prague passage that sounds like this. And in the last third of the piece, that gets worked into this kind of, it eventually becomes more like 60s film strip meets bossa nova meets summer nights from Greece kind of feel. Yes, um, yes. I totally caught that summer nights. Oh, yeah. Bit. Yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, there's a lot of songs that use that progression, but that yeah. was the one. In fact, I think I directly took the drum part for that mm -hmm. from somebody's transcription of that song. Um, but so that melody I just played you note for note transposed, I think um, appears in a completely different harmonic context, a tonal harmonic context, but yeah. with all that chromaticism uh, in that final section uh, or penultimate section uh, with the marking, like really unfortunate Christmas music. <laughs> Now, one more thing. That right there, a melody comes in in the Barry sax and trombone. Uh, and here it is. But you heard the beginning of it just now. Here's how it continues. <laughs> Well, that is the sleazy neo-noir sax melody from an earlier section. So 
that's three elements holding the piece together formally. Number one, uh, all kinds of interleaved recurring material. Number two, one of those things is a main theme that acts as a kind of signpost. Number three, there are actually going to be four of these. Number three, the whole opening section reappears at the end, but now with words. And number four, uh, there's this kind of um, joining together process where it starts out more fragmentary and then gets about two thirds of the way into the piece, uh, things start getting more joined together and overlapped and it becomes one single continuous thing rather than a bunch of channel surfing. Yeah, that, I mean, that, that's fantastic. By the way, that's sax solo. Oh my God. I know. <laughs> so and good. here's the great thing about that, that, you know, the accelerando in that passage makes it work so well. I didn't write that. Uh, that was Chris's idea. They just did that. Um, okay. Yeah. I originally had it all at one tempo, the goal tempo. And Chris was like, no, I think we should start slower here. And I was like, I don't know about this. And he said, he just said, I'm not exactly a composer's conductor. <laughs> and he did it. And by, the, by, and by the end of the rehearsal, I was completely convinced. Oh, my um, gosh. Which was great because part of my goal with this piece was to be more collaborative and interactive than I had yeah. been previously. This was 2015. I was really feeling the need to leave more things up to the performers. You know, there's entire sections of this piece that are at least somewhat or entirely improvised. Um, the noisiest ones, basically. Yeah. Um, we'll just, I don't know if you've seen the score, but, you know, it'll just say uh, chaotic, noisy improv, 20 seconds, think new complexity. Mm -hmm. Or uh, there's one part where it says something just like uh, uh, rapid angular bebop solo or something like that. Yep. Um, so, th so there are those sections because I knew there were improvisers in the group. Um, and I knew who they were, you know, specifically uh, Chris Kallmeyer on guitar and Richard Velatuto on piano. And now my mind is blanking, so I'd have to go check who's – let's leave this out because I don't want to forget sure. anybody's name on the podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sure, I knew no there problem. were some improvisers in the group. Is, is Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I also uh, I also love your note in the score – um, in your, like in the performance notes, um, have fun, exaggerate, and don't worry about good taste. You know, I think I've that put, I've, I've put notes like that in a lot of my scores. Um, I've been on kind of a crusade against the concept of good taste. Yeah. Crusade is maybe not the ideal word here to use. I've been on a mission against the concept of good taste, um, for a long time, many, many years. And for a lot of reasons, I think that often when people talk about good taste, what they're really talking about is making something acceptable to a particular subculture. Yes. And in the classical music world, that often means making sure that it's something feels adequately sophisticated and thoughtful, which can be really boring. And mm -hmm. in various pop culture worlds, it can mean making sure something seems cool, which can also be really boring. Mm -hmm. And there's so much great stuff that is, you know, messy and trashy and, you know, but it goes in multiple directions because, it, you know, there's, a, I also love some mainstream pop music and there are people who look down on that and say, oh, you know, it's, it's all just mass market cliches. And I'm like, have you actually listened to Toxic? Can we talk about, you want to talk about polystylism. You've got this Bollywood string thing, and then there's these spaghetti Western guitars like a la Ennio Morricone. They have nothing to do with each other, and they fit together perfectly. I mean, 
pop music is weird. Yeah. I used to, I used to have, um, the, uh, I used to have toxic as a ringtone. I like that song a lot. There you go. Um, anyway. And this has also been one of the ideas behind my dissertation research, which was on electronic music and advertising, which is, you know, advertising music. Nobody wants to take that seriously except for me and Timothy Taylor. Um, (laughs) and like three other people, um, you know, because, you know, it's produced within the context of this very predatory industry. And if you look at uh, Eric Sade, who was possibly the first person to ever use electronic music in advertising, either him or Raymond Scott, um, by the end of his life, he was talking about using music to manipulate consumers in pretty creepy ways. He was into hypnosis and all this stuff. And uh, so, yeah, I understand why people are skeptical of it, but there's also a lot of musical invention and technological innovation. You know, Sade was Bob Moog's second customer ever. Suzanne Chani was a student of Don Buchla. And in 1978, she created a sound logo for Coca-Cola that imitates uh, somebody opening and pouring out a Coke and all the fizzy noises and so on, completely on a Buchla. And it sounds fizzier and more delicious than the actual real world sound if she'd recorded it. Oh, that's and awesome. I, I like to say it's, it's my favorite. I think it's the best eight second long piece of music ever written. <laughs> that's awesome. I mean, but you know, Rodney yeah. Dangerfield style, it, it don't get no respect. So uh, <laughs> good taste be damned. Well, it seems like taste is, is only, re- it's only relative and only important if you're trying to keep things out as opposed to bring things in, you know, it's, it's only, it only serves as a gatekeeper. Yes, it very often does. I, you know, I'm interested in personal taste or what real Marcus calls uh, the personal culture as opposed to the general culture, Mm -hmm. but good taste, bad taste is some kind of codified set of rules about what's on the inside and what's on the outside. That just sounds like a, incredibly depressing way to live your life and yes it does end up frequently being exclusionary sometimes in ways that correspond with other forms of social injustice and other times Mm -hmm. not you know and yeah i think it's a bad thing either way yeah yeah definitely well uh let's listen to it so we're gonna hear the wild up ensemble and this is the man who hated everything Thank you. 
Hi there, it's Andrew Martin-Smith again, with a brief message from our podcast sponsor. Are you interested in learning more about a community of composers that places emphasis on building relationships and forming connections with creatives across multiple disciplines? From social and political commentary to the exploration of scientific algorithms, with the use of electronically generated sounds and or the incorporation of contemporary images, dance, glassblowing, prose, or poetry, the members of the Adjective Composers Collective embrace a variety of musical techniques and styles to create evocative works that have enthralled audiences across the world. Looking to foster or facilitate a new commission or collaboration? feel free to contact us at adjectivenewmusic.com. Let's create something new and impactful together. We now return to this week's episode of Lexical Tones. Let's talk about your piece, Viola Joke. So Absolutely. It's for two vaudevillian violas and laugh track. I think one of the hardest things to do in music is be funny. And you have absolutely no problems there. This piece is funny. It's great. I mean, where did this idea come from? And what is the like general story? You kind of already teased it a bit, but what's the general story that's playing out in the in what the uh, violists are saying? Wouldn't you like to know? <laughs> uh, that didn't load fast enough for good time. Ah, okay. it was um, fun. <laughs> All right. So the scenario is that they are delivering these jokes in some kind of cabaret or club. Um, and they're living in a world where all kinds of horrible things are going on, which are gradually revealed through the content of their jokes. So we know, let's see, what do we know about this world? We know that uh, there's a mysterious fog that kind of erases people's minds that there's an epidemic of people looking in the mirror and not recognizing themselves, that there's some gigantic mountain that blocks out the sun except for a few minutes a day. The city has been split in half and there's this vast wasteland between the two halves of it. There's a horrifyingly deep sinkhole um, that people are terrified of. And what else? Those are sort of the main aspects. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things that are described as terrifyingly huge or horrifyingly deep or all these kind of similar phrases to that. And... Um, so they're telling these jokes, which as the piece goes on, get kind of dumber and dumber. Like they start out as these kind of like, kind of a back and forth kind of series of, I don't know, like, like, like two radio guys talking together. And then they start getting into these kind of standard joke formulas, you know, like what's the difference between, or what do you get when you cross? And so, and so the jokes are like, what do you get if you cross that vast blank featureless expanse that separates the two halves of our city? I don't know. What? About 20 years older, you know, so they all, <laughs> and they all have these like horror punchlines and um, eventually it gets to your mom jokes, which is, I think yes. actually the funniest part because it's yes. such a 
ridiculous thing to do, but they're like, oh yeah, well, your mom's so dumb. She doesn't understand why her reflection has looked subtly unfamiliar for the last six weeks. And so it just completely <laughs> diverges into this, um, into this, uh, you know, how do I want to put this? There's a, there's a sharp contradiction between the ridiculousness and kind of elementary school playground jibeness of the joke setup and the increasingly elaborate, creepy, surreal world building of the joke punchlines. Yeah. Um, there's a whole thing also about not being able to shake the, the idea that your face has been replaced by a featureless expanse of skin. The word featureless comes up a lot too. Um, there's all these words that kind of get repeated in this almost ritualistic way, which I think makes it creepier and also funnier. Mm -hmm. And so the eventually the sort of rivalry, the performed rivalry between these two players get devolves to, if you have something to say, say it to my face. And then everyone says, what face? And then they just start repeating what face. And that was originally just going to be like two or three times, but Doyle Armbrust and Chris Fisher Lockhead who did, who performed it, uh, and it's been performed by some other people, but um, uh, like Aperture Duo, but um, that was the premiere. Uh, they just, they wanted to repeat it more times and it was perfect. And they kind of wandered around looking lost on the stage as if they were lost in the fog. And the thing is the laugh track has been gradually transforming as well. So it starts out as, you know, wait, I have recordings here. It starts out as, <laughs> that's sort of in the middle or like this one that I did a second ago. <laughs> But eventually they start getting repli replaced with other kinds of things you sometimes hear in sitcoms, like, Aww. which they then imitate on their violas. And after that, it's just nature sounds. So it'll be like, and that's where, you know, you're really getting into the uncanny. There's thunder, there's birds. And then finally, the last nature sound is also their response to the getting lost in the fog is this. I loved it. I loved the crickets. But it has a double meaning, right? Because yeah. it's actually also a symbol of the in-piece, the imaginary audience, not getting the joke, not liking the joke, objecting to it because they their grim humor has gotten too close to home. And so they have to back up and sort of sing sing their way out of the situation. When, of course, that's the other style of humor is there's all these ridiculous rhymes. You know, I'm, I'm a fan of like Tom Lehrer and the Prince Mishkins and Sondheim and all these people who write these convoluted rhymes. So in that case, it's, uh, we see the frosty reception, well, more like Antarctic, that you, that you, our dear audience, has given our shtick. Sometimes black, sometimes black comedy can be cathartic, rhymes with Arctic, Arctic mm -hmm. sort of. Uh, and that's why we played such a hair-raising trick. And we realize our methods may seem a bit Baroque. They play a little Baroque music there. Yep. But here in this cabaret that we call Constellation, we can entertain the dwindling population and so on and so forth. It was going to be performed originally in a venue called Constellation. Mm -hmm. I have rewritten that line for other performance venues. So like, um, <laughs> do I remember any of them? Uh, yeah. So Aperture Duo performed it at a place called Boston Court in somewhere in California. Uh -huh. And so I turned it into... But here in this cabaret that we call Boston Court, we hope that we can entertain you last resortly. <laughs> and then when they did it at Cal State Long Beach, I turned it into here in this cabaret that we call Cal State Long Beach, we can entertain you with our mordant song speech. 
So, this is awesome. So I've really enjoyed doing that. Um, so yeah. So the point is that um, there's a, there's a lot of sort of world building that takes place by means of the jokes. Yeah. And again, there's kind of a formalist process of transformation that happens, and then a return to something from earlier. I never realized how similar those two pieces are in structure. Actually, mm-hmm. that's kind of cool. I, you know, I think that there there's a there's a kind of almost like. I, I could not place what it was, but there's obviously a bit of music that keeps coming back. It's almost like cartoony in a way. You know what I'm talking about? Um, uh, it it almost reminded me. No, it it almost reminded me of like uh, Officer Krupke. It's like da 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 da. Like you know what I'm talking about? Yes. That's the part I was just singing. I was just saying the lyrics to actually. Okay. Yeah. We see the frost, or I'll do the first version of it. Um. We know that space, time, and logic make less and less sense now that so many sinister events have unfurled. More and more things are grotesque and immense now as we draw closer to the end of the world. Yeah, that part. (laughs) It is is a little bit like Officer Krupke. I didn't realize that. Is, is also, that just you, like, composing in a kind of style like that? It seems so familiar, yet I can't place it. It's not intentionally a quote. It might I might have okay. something in the back of my mind. Okay. I don't do a lot of quoting. I really enjoy yeah. imitating styles, so that's what mm-hmm. I tend to do. Okay. Um, even, sometimes pretty closely. I mean, like, you know, if you look at the opening of The Man Who Hated Everything and you look at Zappa's Oh No, they're very similar stylistically, mm-hmm. but, they're, but there's no actual quotation. Right. Okay. Um where I mean, you know, I think the laugh track is is so smart. It simultaneously takes us like to you know another place, especially when you're doing you know the non-laugh things like the crickets and the and the storm and stuff like that. Um, but it also tears down like the stuffiness of the concert hall in one fell swoop and gives the audience the clue like, hey, this is. This is fun and funny. You can you can laugh. Like I think of so many pieces, they try to be funny and they fail because they don't disarm the audience first, and then it's just like awkward. The problem is that they're trying to be whimsical instead of funny. Yeah. Okay, but here's the weird thing, and I did not predict. I had no idea if this piece was going to work mm-hmm. until the moment it was premiered. I was I, it, I was like, this could completely flop, or it could be a rollicking success. And, you know, it really helped that I was working with such great performers, of course. Yeah. And also that Chris Fisher Lockhead is, has an intimate knowledge of stand-up comedy. You know, he's written mm-hmm. a string quartet called Hack that's based on the transcriptions of the spoken cadences of comedians. Oh, that's um, so cool. So that certainly helped. And Doyle is just, you know, up for anything. Um, I will say I really enjoyed putting the lines, uh, what can I say? I'm a size, gwe- size queen in the mouth of a straight <laughs> yes. dude. Um, <laughs> He said he was up for it, so you know. Yeah. Um. Anyway, um. Right. So what I wasn't expecting is that the first time the laugh track happens, the audience also laughed loudly enough that they didn't catch it. I know. Which is I, why when you get to the second one, there's a second wave of laughter once they realize there's also a laugh track. Yes. So I guess you know. I guess that means apparently they were primed to think it was funny already, even without the uh, laugh track. But I think there are also some reasons for that that have to do with 
the framing of the event. So one thing is that um, when I made the Facebook invite, this was at my DMA recital in 2017, when I made the Facebook invite, if I remember right, I think I actually labeled that when I put the concert program, just a description of the concert program, this wasn't in the official printed program put out by Northwestern, but on my Facebook invite, I think I labeled it the funny half and the scary half or something like that, (laughs) or the funny half and the spooky half or something. Secondly, there had already been a kind of like darkly humorous piece performed prior to that on the same concert, which was Mm -hmm. uh, Eliza Brown doing a piece called a presentation to the board, which uh, in which I took a 1957 advertising thing from Red Book Magazine, actually an appeal to advertisers to advertise with Red Book Magazine because basically the whole thing is to say our customers are suburban couples and suburban couples buy stuff. So it's all this 1950s iconography. I cut it up, gave it a new score, gave it a new text and turned it into this whole like conspiracy theory thing. So, and that was, that was kind of comical. Like it ends with, uh, this presentation has been paid for by the Committee for Mutually Assured Destruction and the National Omniscience Association. NOA, don't call us. We'll call you. <laughs> so like lines like that come from like growing up on the Firesign Theater and the Marx yeah. Brothers and the Animaniacs and all that kind of stuff. But, and I, which is also why I'm talking too fast now. I got to watch that. Um, but, um, and then the third thing was one of, um, one of the other pieces that had been not performed, but played over speakers was my piece out of style, which is a recutting a very fine grained recut of style by Taylor Swift. Mm -hmm. And it becomes increasingly clear over the course of that piece, what the sampled source material is because the samples get longer and it gradually goes from pitch shifted down a tritone to original pitch. And so I said beforehand, um, can anybody identify what this, what the song was that I didn't tell them what song was I using um, as my source material. And um, my friend, Amber Treadway, you know, director, musical writer, etc., who also directed the um, three principles of noir in New York. Um, she got it. And I was just like points to, you know, a hundred points to Amber, you know, so I was being very kind of theatrical mm-hmm. about the whole experience anyway. So I think the audience was primed. Also a bunch of my people who are not part of the classical music world came to the show Yeah, and they don't have the kind of inhibitions that classical music people do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's great. I mean, I'm I, the, the, text for this piece is all yours right yeah i'd actually started out okay here's a story uh do you remember live journal yes yes i do remember live journal okay yeah so for anybody listening who is not familiar live journal was like the big online blogging platform of the 2000s and i had many live journals personal ones, high concept ones, experimental ones. And one of them was this kind of surrealist thing. I just used it for automatic writing and surrealist little bits and pieces. And what I, one thing I enjoyed is I was able to gain new readers for that by just friending random people. And, you know, sometimes they would say, who are you? Go away. And sometimes they would friend, friend that account back. I tried to revive it on Twitter at some point in like 2013 Total failure because there's too much weird on Twitter already. Nobody would even pay, give it another a second look. Um, but while I still had that account, I wrote 
a bunch of stuff that turned into the opening text of Viola Joke. Mm-hmm. And I knew I was, you know, at some point I was like, you know, I should turn this into something at some point. Um, <laughs> uh, like, I know that that's not a gap. It's just an outlet store joke was in there. And the the whole thing about the terrifyingly huge hole and the unfathomably large gap that was in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, this is something I often do. Um, in fact, the song that I called This American Life from my song cycle Behind the Wallpaper, that text is a shortened version of something I originally wrote in the Periskiac Live Journal. Mm-hmm. I mean, because because you're almost dealing with like with jokes here, and I suppose like in a way, because you have the laugh track at your disposal, you can kind of like it is either going to work in favor of a joke or almost against a joke. Sometimes I think there are some points where you use the laugh track and it's like clearly not funny at, at all, but it, in that way, it makes <laughs> well, yeah. it like hilarious, yeah. you know. Um, but did you, you know, did you go through like any sort of revision process, like a almost like a stand-up comic would? You know, they go get up on stage, try the jokes out, see what hits, see what misses, and then no, this was this was the first run, and it and it hit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got. I wrote the whole thing out. I wrote the text first, and then I wrote the whole thing out on eleven by seventeen staffless sketch pad paper. Mm-hmm. without any specific notes, just contours and rhythms and text. And then I went to the piano and laboriously figured out what all these pitches were going to be. Cause half the time it there, you know, the notes are just the contour of whatever the speech is, yeah. you know? So they'll say, where'd you hear that? And on the viola, they'll go, bah, 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 bah. but I also wanted it to be a pretty consistent, like a tonal, like highly chromatically saturated language. So it was actually a really endless process. Yeah. Um, by comparison, writing the little, you know, vaudeville choruses was a breeze, except for coming up with the rhymes, but I love that stuff. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, no, I wrote it. It was all, I wrote it all on my own. And, uh, and then I, you know, even finally got to hear it in rehearsal and it sounded great, but I was like, I really don't know how this is going to land for most people <laughs> who aren't fucking weirdos. I think anybody <laughs> who came to my concert was probably a fucking weirdo. Though, so. Yeah. <laughs> It's fine. But it turned out it's one of my more popular pieces. So Yeah. Uh I mean, I encourage everyone, after you of course listen to it here, you should go to Alex's website and watch the video because your performers are amazing and oh my god, do they really sell it. Um, they really do. So who uh what are their names again? Who we're gonna hear? It's Doyle Armbrist from Spectral Quartet and Chris Fisher Lockhead, who is uh perhaps better known as a composer, but he's also a member of Grant Wallace Band. Awesome. So here is Viola Joke. Terrifyingly huge, huh? 
to this kindly tall mountain, try to kill himself. I don't know, why? Because he couldn't shake the feeling that his face had been replaced by a blank, featureless expanse of skin. starting to worry. shadow over the city and permits us only a few scant minutes of daylight has always been there. <laughs> Can you believe this guy? <laughs> if you have something to say, say it to my face. What face? <laughs> what face? What face? What face?
So uh, the last piece we're going to talk about, um, this is a rather recent piece, um, and it's all we could see from the window was water for trombone and piano. And this short piece was a commission of sorts. So how did it come about? This actually came about because of a project that Jen Wong arranged early on in the Trump presidency, where composers signed up to take commissions in the form of donations to Raices, which is a, an immigrant rights organization. And um, a number of people commissioned me by making those donations. And I have to confess some of those pieces I still have to write. <laughs> um, they're miniatures and time has just, I don't know. Yeah. The Trump administration really knocked a big hole in my level of productivity. Mm-hmm. But um, uh yeah, so that was it was um Will Lang who commissioned that and then was putting on a recital with Anne Rainwater and said, Hey, why don't we make this that project? Yeah, that's awesome. And Will Will is uh from Load Bang. Um Yes, who I'm also writing a piece for, a long delayed piece, uh called Diadem, uh yeah. which is on a text, rarely not a text by me, a text by R. A. Briggs, who's a poet friend of mine. Um, written sort of based on my suggestions. It is a uh, virilet, um, you know, the 14th century French poem mm-hmm. and song form. Actually, the poem and the song form are a little bit different. And this is the song form of the virilet mm-hmm. um, about gay desire in the face of overwhelming Catholicism. And uh, oh boy. <laughs> uh, so I call it a queerlet. A queerlet. <laughs> That's yeah, awesome. so that'll be done eventually. Um, yeah. And also, Loadbang is going to do my piece, Thick Line, and some upcoming virtual concerts. So I've I mean, got a Load... few collaborations with uh, with them. Yeah, Loadbang is awesome. I wrote I wrote for them uh, in in a festival, and they just I mean you know they just killed it as they do. So as they do. Yeah. Um, can you talk about your harmonic language in this piece? I mean, it seems like you have. Based on the two pieces we've uh, we've already looked at, it seems like you have kind of a kaleidoscopic range of techniques. And I mean, can you kind of talk about that? Like, where does that come from in you? Oh God! I mean, there are a lot of kinds of harmonies that I like. I really like octatonicism. I really like dominant ninth chords. I really like major seventh chords and like add two major triads with an add two mm-hmm. or major nine, if you want to call it that. Um, I like crunchy like total chromatic saturation atonality um i like like hugo wolf kind of late 19th century chromaticism i'm just naming every harmonic language (laughs) 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 those are some of the those are some of the um some of the reference points though seth brodsky once made the observation that the periods of music that i tend to make reference to are often utopian ones which is not Mm. something that was intentional uh, and, it, and which is sort of ironic in a way, since I've written a number of dystopian pieces. Yeah. Although I'm trying to move away from that. Um, as far as the harmonic language in All We Could See From the Window was water specifically, some of it comes from mid-period Beach Boys. And that was because when I asked Will what he'd been enjoying and listening to recently, he mentioned Pet Sounds. One thing you may notice listening to that piece is that a lot of the melodies end with this tag like da 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 da. Mm-hmm. Brian Wilson does that in like every song, right? <laughs> like, um, I love the colorful clothes she wears. 
or right. where did your long hair go? Or I know there's an answer. I know now, but I had to find it by myself. That's like the tag of Brian Wilson's songwriting. So I did that a bunch. Um, but also like the harmonies are somewhat kind of inspired by the harmonies of a song like God Only Knows, which yeah. I've always enjoyed for the way that the vocal part enters sort of in the middle of the chord progression mm-hmm. unexpectedly um, in a place that's somewhat removed from what turns out to be the tonic. Um, so I was thinking about that. But then there's also these interludes that are more kind of octatonic and I don't know, they're all canons at the, at the eighth note, which is mostly just me being a fan of Andreessen because mm-hmm. he does that in Hout and some other pieces. It's definitely, there's one in writing for Vermeer, if I remember right. Schnitke does it too. Um, I've been teaching Schnitke lately, so that's on my mind. But I was thinking more about Andreessen when I wrote the piece. Um, yeah, I think it's pretty much that, plus like I really like dominant ninth chords. Yeah. So I used them. Um, oh, and then of course in the middle it goes into this like descending fifths progression and it's cheesy as fuck and it just makes me so happy. Yeah. Cheesiness. I thought- I, that's my, my, my other old slogan is cheesiness is the new dissonance. By which I mean <laughs> cheesiness has the potential to make audiences at a new music concert uncomfortable in the way that dissonance once did a hundred, maybe a little more years ago. That's brilliant. I like that. But the problem is at this point, people aren't uncomfortable anymore and that's fine. Know. You know, it's, it's no longer, unless they're really, you know, uptight um, or stuffy. Uh, so, you know, a lot of the things that I used to enjoy because they were cheesy and it felt rebellious, I now just enjoy. And that feels better anyway. So yeah. In- if I instead want rebellion, of- I can always go listen to, you know, and like trans punk back trans punk bands talking about ripping the system to pieces. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I think it's always nicer to just like genuinely be excited about something as opposed to using something for an effect, you know, it's like, yeah, this is my I mean, language. I was always genuinely excited about it, but I used to be more self-conscious about being genuinely excited about it. Yeah. And I don't care anymore. Like, all these hangups I used to have about, you know, is this sophisticated enough and is this serious enough? And is this too obvious? I just couldn't possibly care less at this point. I'm writing what I want to write and it seems like people like it. So cool. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take it. Um, That makes it easier, of course, that people like it. Um, But also I just, I don't know, at a certain point, I just get so tired of second guessing myself about the issues like style. And, you know, of course I do when it comes to issues like, you know, things having to do with the politics of style, cultural appropriation and so on. Mm -hmm. Um, I recently took a piece down from my website because I'm really not sure about how it functions culturally, Um, which I actually don't want to get into right now. (laughs) Yeah, let's not. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I mean... I th- I think that like you know age and experience, you just start you well you stop giving a shit, and uh, I I think that 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 same thing um, I personally have found as a composer later on it's like you know when I was younger I had these hangups about like you can't use any tonality or, or any, anything like this. Like you, it must be set or it must be this or that, and it's like eventually I was just like who the fuck cares. You know, I mean, like yeah. I, and I, I want we, to write what I want to write, and uh, if it, 
I, I think that music that is not so dogmatic, not so in this camp or that camp, that has become the music that is so much more interesting to me where you can where you can go into these like step into this world and then come out of it and go into that place and and whatever and just take these little bits and make and 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 mix them together to make something that is uniquely you. I mean, that's that's like so much more interesting to me now than uh than when I was younger. And I think part of it is because of that like you just realize like who am I putting this up for? Like who what 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 uh what mask or whatever am I trying to wear and who is it for and why isn't it for me you know as the creator yeah and it's weird because in our generation we weren't getting this from our teachers we were Mm -hmm. getting it from just like the discourse the abstract discourse floating around our field the number of people I have actually met who held that attitude very small I've met some Mm -hmm. I remember meeting somebody at this was a fascinating experience at the Midwest Composers Symposium back in the day. Um, I A piece of mine called This Changes Everything had been played. And, you know, might as well grab some audio of that. Um, <laughs> while I'm looking, uh, you know, it's a piece that is for synths. There's also a version for sax and synths. Um, and it's got a backbeat and it's got, well, here it is. that much of it and my this person who i met came up to me afterward and said i really enjoyed your piece it was such a great critique of commercial music and i said critique what do you mean and she said well because it starts with a backbeat and then the backbeat breaks down and it dissolves into this ambient section and i said yeah but that just means one thing happens and then another thing happens it doesn't mean that the second thing is the re- is better or more real than the first thing. Mm-hmm. And I said, I actually like a lot of commercial music. And I started talking about that. And she just said, well, pop music is just a bunch of recycled cliches for the mass market. There's no such thing as experimental pop. It's impossible. And I just, I think I said Come that's on. the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And that was the end of that conversation. But like, how often do you meet people like that? Really yeah. not often. I've got a handful of stories I once met an organist who said that he was disappointed that Juilliard had added a jazz program because it was, in his view, inferior music. That was 20 years ago. I'm still telling that story because I don't run into that that often. Mm-hmm. There's all kind, there's, there's subtler biases for sure, but this kind of blatant, like, you know, uh, really like hardline attitude, it's not that common, especially, you know, especially in our generation and younger. Yeah. So, and that's the thing I think about this when I was 19, I was writing polystylistic music, but I was much more aggro about it as 19 year olds tend to be and like manifesto E about it. And, you know, I, I, my attitude was, you know, this is, you know, the future and it's going to make the, 
uh, you know, the rest of the new music establishment obsolete and like self-publishing independent underground record labels are going to be, I was running a label out of my dorm. That was just myself. I was like, hey, no, this is going to be the future and we'll be dancing on your graves and all this stuff. And now it just seems like, why do you have to get so hung up about it? Um, and it reminds me of one of something I once read that made a huge impression on me which was uh, in the liner notes to Frederick Chu's recording of the Prokofiev piano sonatas. And it talks about his fifth piano sonata, which he wrote in the twenties partially to prove to people that he could write a quiet and sensitive piece rather than just a virtuosic showy kind of stuff. And then he revised it in the, in the fifties toward the end of his life. And I haven't heard the original version, just the revised version, but this, thing in the liner notes, which made a big impression on me, said, the earlier version brags about its serenity. The later version is simply serene. Yes. Yeah. And so, like, I kind of, that's kind of my goal, except not with serenity, but mm. with with whatever. polystylism, I yeah. guess, you know, like eclecticism. Yeah, that's great. Um, what is, for, for this piece... Uh, all we could see from the window was water. What does the what does the title mean? It's from a dream. Um, at some point, it's from a dream that's loosely based on a real event. At some point, when I was a kid, uh, my family went with a family friend to a house on Cape Cod, specifically the town of Bourne, Massachusetts, and. It was right by the water, and from the second floor, unless you were close to the window, you would look out and all you saw was the water, and it sort of looked like you were floating in the sea. Uh -huh. That apparently made a big impression on me, because I've been dreaming about it for years, but it gets exaggerated in my dreams. So it'll be like gigantic waves. Sometimes there are waves that like vault themselves over the house. Sometimes it'll be a giant flood. There's all kinds of versions. I still have these dreams. Yeah. Um, also, the opening melody of the piece was originally going to be to correspond to the syllables of all we could see from the window was water. But at some point I added more syllables, so that doesn't work anymore. <laughs> awesome. So uh, we're going to be hearing Will Lang on uh, trombone. And uh, wh what was the name of the pianist again? And Rainwater. So this is all we could see from the window was water for trombone and piano.
So uh, we're to the question that I always ask all the composers and artists who come on the podcast. How did you find music as the thing that you wanted to pursue for your life? Okay. Here's a story of privilege. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm not going to deny it. Um, So my dad was a piano minor in college. And when I was growing up, he had a piano in the house and would play it periodically. And, you know, he's, you know, not, you know, a a virtuoso. He just would sort of play through things. Mm -hmm. Um, He played, uh, I remember in particular enjoying the uh, first movement of the Mozart piano sonata in F major, whose K number I don't remember, but it's the one that starts... that one um and yeah. the d minor prelude from wilther Brickleveer book one and one of the brahms opus 79 rhapsodies i want to say number two yeah the g minor one i don't think that's right um something like that so yeah so that got me started uh playing around on the piano. And at some point my mom said, do you want piano lessons? And I said, sure. So I started taking piano lessons and every now and then I would kind of like poke around at like writing a little tiny thing. But what really got me going on composing was, um, at some point in the, yeah, right in the beginning of the nineties, my mom got into home exchanges. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Mm-mm, no. Um, but if you, if you, you know, have a house it's a really nice way to travel because you don't have to pay for a hotel or rent a car basically okay. you th- at the time it was physical catalogs now it's online uh you list all the relevant stuff about your house you know like easy access to whatever and this many bedrooms and we have a cat and um and then you where you want to go and you find somebody who wants to go where you are and you write to them and you say, hey, do you want to do this thing? And then you arrange something. Um, and my family did a lot of traveling this way when I was a kid. Um, and my mom and her partner still do it. Um, I mean, not right now in the pandemic, but sure. otherwise. And I sometimes join them. I went to Vancouver with them in 2014, for example. Um, so we did this house exchange when I was 11 to Padua and Oh my God, this house was ridiculous. It was like marble floors and vast open rooms. I don't know. It was crazy. And also a really escape prone kitten. And, um, and they also had a classical CD collection and I was, you know, I was listening to some classical music already, mostly Bach along with like, you know, the nightmare before Christmas soundtrack and Animaniac songs and, I was very detached from pop culture, but like kid culture I was into Uh and, um, but not like tween culture, which I don't think was called tween yet. But, um, I remember just sort of out of curiosity, listening to these CDs and getting really, really obsessed with certain pieces, namely the finale of the Schubert Opus Posthumus C minor piano sonata. Uh, the Chopin preludes, the Brahms variations and fugue and on a theme by Handel. And the soundtrack to 32 short films about Glenn Gould, which was also my introduction to Hindemith and Scriabin and Schoenberg. And this is really fascinating to me because everybody talks about how Schoenberg is an acquired taste, but I heard it and thought, oh, that's cool. Uh It's spiky sounding. 
Like aliens that have X's and Z's in their name. Great. Into it. It was the Gigue from the piano suite specifically. And also the first of the Opus 19 piano pieces, which I was took me longer to appreciate because it's yeah. slow. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I just started listening and I started wanting to write. And so like we went out and found me some music paper and they had a little little like you know three octave electric organ there and i started writing these little pieces and i just kind of never stopped that said there are other topics i've been interested in i've been interested in linguistics since high school still am um and i there was a while when i thought i might end up studying that in college but then i didn't and you know at this point there's a degree of inertia (laughs) (laughs) There was a while when I thought maybe where that maybe really what I want to do is be a filmmaker. I'm very interested in film, but oh my god, learning a whole new medium and not to mention such a complicated and expensive and time-consuming one. Who who has time for that? Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I think there's the other I I've talked about this with other people. There's there's also the thing and this is a personal hang-up of mine that I I just need to get over. Um, but there's also the thing about like, hey, I know this this thing, this I know music like well enough, you know, to to have a job in it and do it for you know creatively and and all this all this stuff. And then you think about like, oh, I, me personally, I think about, oh, wouldn't it be nice to like do sculptures or or paint or something like that? And then I think about, wow, I'm gonna suck for a long long time before I get to the level I am with music with that other thing. And it's like, I I think that knowing that you have these ideas about this other thing that you want to do and you're, you just know you're going to suck at it and not be able to realize those ideas and get frustrated and all that stuff. And I, I I know like other people have told me and I've told myself like, you just need to get over it. You just got to do it because that's what you want to do. But the the sucking <laughs> is still like a hurdle to get over. Yeah, absolutely. And I think some media have a greater barrier of entry than others as far as the learning curve goes. Um, for example, I was really into photography for a while. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, it takes just as long to become a great photographer. It doesn't take as long to become a competent photographer right, as it yeah. takes to become a competent sculptor, mm-hmm. probably. Um And I actually got pretty good. Uh, But at the same time, my dad was getting into photography as an amateur, but as a very invested amateur. Mm. He's in like camera clubs and he has all these lenses and all this software. And I was like, if I pursue this any further than I'm already pursuing it, it's going to become a huge time investment and I don't have time. Yeah. Um, So I just kind of stopped with that. I mean, I still take pictures, but I don't have it aspirations of continuing linearly towards whatever goal. Yeah. Um, another example, you know, people will say composers shouldn't write their own texts. It's true. A lot of composers are bad at that, but I just mm-hmm. sort of started doing it and I didn't suck, but I've gotten better. <laughs> yeah. 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 Absolutely. I think, you know, I think it was not so much that my, that I was bad at it before as that I was more limited and now I can write characters yeah, like motivations and personalities. Whereas initially it was all like weird, tall tales and like this very abstract kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, Alex, you know, this is, this has been really great. Uh, before yeah. we go, can you tell people where they can find, uh, more of your music, um, your website, uh, any, any, uh, 
you know, online places that they might find you? Yeah, it's all the same. Uh, Alex Temple Music. So that's my SoundCloud. That's my YouTube and also my domain name, www.alextemplemusic.com. All one word. Awesome. Thank you so much for doing this and welcome to Adjective. Thank you. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about Adjective New Music or Lexical Tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.